0: Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We left off in verse 12, Philippians chapter 1. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to read through it, to meditate upon it. We ask that you would speak to us afresh. We would find you to be our strong tower, our fortification. Joy in the Lord. Would you bless our time in your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 18, verse 10 says, For the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Who God is and the truth, the promises of his word, provide a fortification for our lives. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison as he's writing this letter to the church of Philippi to encourage them. But yet, he's experiencing joy. He refers to rejoicing and joy in the gospel over and over throughout this letter. And it provides a tremendous example to us that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we're going through, we could be in a prison-like experience that we can take joy in the Lord. Our joy is not found in how we feel, but the truth of who God is. Last week we meditated on this truth. If I change my mind, God will change my heart. But if I don't change my mind, God won't change my heart. Paul oftentimes refers to what he knows, not what he feels. Emotions can be very wonderful, can't they? You know, on Mother's Day, it's what causes us to be able to celebrate our moms. I think that none of us would want to go through life without any emotion. But at the same time, Emotion can really betray us, can it? Depression and discouragement and our minds go in an unhealthy way, in an unbiblical way. And I'm sure Paul was facing that as he was going in prison. And he's saying, this is what I know to be true. I'm going to fix my mind on what I know to be true. Especially in these six verses. We're going to study verse 12 through verse 18. We see Paul processing his difficulty trying to make sense of it all. So we've entitled this message, Difficulty in the Gospel. As we go through challenges in our lives, it's the gospel that helps our difficulty make sense. Like the Apostle Paul, we're going to have our own prison experiences. We're going to have our own chains, and we process them, don't we? we? We attempt to make sense of them in our lives. Why would a loving God Allow this in my life. If if he loves me, I know that he loves me, I know that he's declared his love to me in his word, then why am I suffering? Why am I sitting here in prison? So I hope that this section of scripture for us this morning helps us in processing the difficulty in our life. Join me in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard And to all the rest. Paul is saying, Look, as I'm in prison, this imprisonment was probably around 61 AD or 62 AD in Rome. He's saying, Being in prison actually turned out. It turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The difficulty provided opportunity to share the gospel. Think about those who were around Paul in this prison. What if your job? was to be a prison guard over the Apostle Paul. You had an eight-hour shift or a 12-hour shift. What do you think's going to happen? You're going to hear about Jesus. Who was really imprisoned? Paul or the prison guard, right? Can't get away from this guy. What if you're a fellow prisoner? What's the Apostle Paul going to do? Get to know you. You're going to see Paul love the Lord. Paul's going to share Jesus with you. And Paul's saying, look, this has given me an opportunity to, to allow the gospel to be shared throughout this prison, throughout this prison guard. Now, if Paul is like us, like we know he is, he's made of the same flesh as we are, do you think that he had to put some work into getting to this perspective? It would be difficult to see what God is doing in midst of this imprisonment. It'd be difficult to see the opportunity that was there in front of him. It shows his maturity. It shows his ability to think biblically in the midst of the difficulty. So here's our first point. The way that we're fortified is difficulty resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Difficulty resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Do we believe that? If there's a loss of job, what's that going to do? It's going to lead you to a different location and bring people into your life that wouldn't have been there otherwise to further the gospel. If we go through a health challenge, what does that do? It brings us into contact with people that we would have never otherwise known. And there's opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. If there's shattering and breaking in relationships, oftentimes then that leads us to a different place. And God is intentionally doing those things to provide an opportunity for the gospel to be shared. We see this in the life of Paul. He's in prison. It gave him the chance to share with a different group of people. We see it with Joseph in the Old Testament. Here he is. He's got 10 older brothers. He would have one younger brother. His brothers are extremely jealous of him. First they want to kill him. Then they decide to sell him as a slave to Egypt. Here he is as a young man. God blesses him, gives him favor. He's over all of Potiphar's house, but then he's falsely accused, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison. By God's hand, miraculously, he's then put in charge of all of Egypt. The only one that was more powerful than him was the Pharaoh, and that gave him opportunity to save Egypt and the surrounding nations, which eventually included his own family, didn't it? The difficulty led to opportunity. We see this in a lady's life, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was born in Baltimore in 1949. Loved to be active, loved to play tennis, loved to ride horses. The summer of 1967, she's 18 years old. She dives into the Chesapeake Bay, misjudges the shallowness of the water, And has a terrible accident. Leaves her to the point where she's a paraplegic. She writes, she expresses that she went through tremendous depression. Thoughts of suicide. Talk about a prison. Talk about chains. Talk about difficulty. But she didn't stay there. In time, she focused on the Lord. In time, she decided to do what she could do, which was learn to paint, holding the paintbrush in her mouth. Can you imagine? The beginning process of that learns to write the the same way. She then developed a very powerful ministry. She's on a thousand different radio stations throughout the world, written over 40 books. How come she has that opportunity to be able to proclaim Christ in that way? It's because of the difficulty. The difficulty has led to the opportunity. I think of it this way. In our home, we have a Vitamix. It's basically a blender on steroids, if you're not familiar with it. Maybe this will ring a bell. Uh, we were in Costco four or five years ago, and they got us at the display table, right? You see the. every once in a while, they've got the Vitamix booth going, and, and, and we bought one, right? And when we make a, a smoothie, Amber or, or I, There's a lot of whole things that get thrown into there, you know? You put an apple, you put an orange, you put some berries, put some protein powder, sometimes ice cream, right? (laughs) There's a lot of things that go into the the blender, and they're in their proper order. But then you turn this Vitamix on, and it's got varying speeds, varying gears, and, and everything just gets destroyed. It's just getting up. It's getting mixed. But then what's the end result of that? Usually something very delicious. It actually turned out, right? See, and that's our lives. Sometimes God in his love and his infinite wisdom says, okay, Eric, I'm going to put your life in the Vitamix. No, I feel so whole things are going well. Why, why would you mess with things now? We've worked so hard to just get to, to this pa- place where there's relative peace. And God says, I know, but I'm going to do something really good. And it's going to give opportunity to share the gospel. Did Jesus go through pain in order to bring the gospel? Absolutely, didn't he? It cost him his life. He very much went into the Vitamix in order to provide the gospel. The Apostle Paul is saying, I know my life is going through suffering, but it's worth it because it's giving me opportunity to share the gospel. And that's important as we go through the difficulties in our lives that sometimes the difficulties aren't just centered upon us. God's got a work that he wants to do. And part of that is to allow suffering so that more people can know about him, more people can understand who Christ is. We go on into verse 13. He says that my chains are in Christ. Now meditate upon that for just a moment. He says, my chains are actually in Christ. I'm chained to Christ, not to the Roman Empire, not to this prison, not to this Roman guard. And do we see our difficulty of actually being in Christ? So point number two is this, is difficulty is submitted to Christ. Difficulty comes through the hand of Christ. God is the one who has allowed the Apostle Paul to be in prison. How do we know this? I mean, this is quite a statement. Let's think about this. This is foundational if we really believe that the trial in our life passes through the, the hand of God. Well, there was times where the Apostle Paul was delivered out of prison. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 16 in the birth of the church of Philippi. If God wanted Paul out of prison, guess what? He'd be out of prison because that happened to him. So if God wants him in prison, that's exactly where he needs to be. Can we say without a shadow of a doubt from scripture, from, from God's word, that the trials in our lives are allowed by God, that they pass through his hand? Yes. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. In the Old Testament, so go ahead and turn there with me in your Bible, Job chapter 1 kind of halfway through your Bible, just before Psalms. Job 1, verse 6. We'll read down to verse 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So Satan has access to the throne room of God, and he comes and has this conversation with God. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan's argument is, no wonder he loves you. You protect him and bless him. You've put this hedge around him and a hedge around his, his family, and he's blessed. He's blessed. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And if we were to continue to read on in Job chapter 1, Job loses all of his children. His children die, loses all of his cattle, his possessions, all in one moment, he gets bad news after bad news after bad news, and Satan goes in and brings all of this trial and difficulty into his life. But notice, it came through the permission of God. He had to get the permission of God before he was allowed to do this, and God set the parameters. God said, okay, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe when difficulty comes into your life that God says, okay, I have allowed this in your life? Some may say no. You know, Satan is the one who brings the destruction, but God was the one who allowed it. If you say no to this, then what's the alternative? If God's not sovereign and God's not in control, what's the alternative? Maybe we're in control. Maybe people are in control. Does that line up with Scripture? Are people on the throne? Are we seated on the throne above all thrones? No. Well, how about this? Well, if it's not people, then then Satan must be on the throne. If I don't believe that God is sovereign, then what's the alternative? The alternative would be people or Satan. And I don't know about you, but I'm much more comforted in the fact that God is sovereign. That it does come through God's hand. Do we always understand the difficulty that he allows in our life? Hardly ever. Hardly ever do we understand the ways of God. So how do we come to a place of being able to trust and be able to say like Paul, my chains are in Christ. God has allowed this and I trust him. For me personally, one of the crux is Romans chapter 8. This is what's declared. You might want it, to write it down. Romans 8.31, it says, what, thou sh- what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Did you catch that? He didn't spare his son. His character is proven as being good. Because he gave me his son. So the hand that died for me, Christ's hand, is the hand that allows trial in my life. So God, I don't like this, I don't understand this, but I can trust you because I know that you're good. Again, this is not always based on our feelings. Our feelings may say, God, it doesn't feel like you're good. It doesn't feel like you love me. But we go back to who we know God to be. When it's dark and there's confusion, depression, and doubt, we have to rely upon what we know. God, this is who I know you to be. You did not spare your son from me, so I can trust you. I'm choosing to trust you with with my will. Isaiah 55 declares this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. Who can understand the mind of God? Who can understand what he has planned and his purposes? Who can be God's counselor? Oh, we've tried. I've tried, right? God, this is the way this should go. This is the way that you need to work in this situation. He's God as we continue with the book of Job, his friends try to make sense of the difficulty. He tries to make sense of the difficulty. There's all this dialogue that happens for chapters, and it's exhausting, really. It is. Till you get to the very end of the book of Job, and God speaks. And what does God tell Job? Basically, I'm God and you're not, to sum it up. says, where were you at the foundations of the earth? Where were you, boom, 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 when I've done all of these amazing things? Do you know this? Do you know that? He's basically saying, look, I'm God. My ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. God never says that we're going to understand him. And I know that's difficult for us as Americans. We have a hard time, you know, if, if God can't fit into our puny brains. But he does say, trust me, trust me. And at the core of this, if God were small enough to fit into my brain, he probably wouldn't be big enough to worship, right? This is what brings awe and inspiration about God is, is God, you're bigger than me. God may be allowing difficulty in my life and saying, Eric, if you didn't go through this crushing, this challenge or this difficulty, your heart would wander from me. And I'm actually protecting you. Your chains are in Christ. Son, you need this. You need this in your life right now. I'm going to use this to benefit you and to to benefit others. Maybe there's a boss that you just can't get away from that you feel chained to. You've looked for other jobs. There's no open door. Getting angry, upset. Guess what? Your boss is in Christ. What do I mean? God wants you there. Your chains are in Christ. Christ. God wants that individual in your life for some reason. So instead of fighting it, going, okay, Lord, this is where we're at. This is what's going on. Accepting it, realizing it's passed through God's hand. God, I don't understand, but I can trust you in this. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Point number three is difficulty reveals the hearts of others. Paul says, as I'm going through this prison experience, it's brought fruit in the body of Christ. People are more apt to be bold about their relationship with Christ. And this is something that's happening in difficulty. God's using it in the life of unbelievers, but he's also using it in the body of Christ. We're told in Hebrews 10 to consider one another, to watch one another, to give thought to one another that we would be stirred up to love and good works. Have you ever had that happen to you? You're watching a fellow brother or sister in Christ go through trial and it stirs you to follow Christ in a greater way. It stirs you to serve Christ in another way. You're seeing Christ being revealed through them and so, so Paul is trying to help the church of Philippi process his imprisonment as well. Say, so don't be discouraged. Look, look at the good that's come out of this difficulty. Look how I've been able to share the gospel. My chains are in Christ. And I know that people have been emboldened because of this trial that I'm going through. But this isn't everybody's response. In verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. There were those that were envious of the apostle Paul envious of how God used him. It seems like this man would sneeze and a church would be birthed. (laughs) He'd go to a city, people would get saved, and all of a sudden you've got this dynamic thing, and set up elders, and move on to the next city, and sneeze again, and there's another church, right? So there's people that were envious of his ministry, envious of God using him, and his anointing, and God's power that were being poured out in his life. So When Paul's in prison, they see it as an opportunity for their own selfish gain. We need to be careful of doing the right thing with the wrong motivation. These guys were doing the right thing. They were preaching Christ, but they were doing it with a sense of envy. Envy usually isn't on the radar of real dangerous sins. Anger, pride, bitterness, lust, sexual sin. Those things are on the radar as they should be. But a little bit of envy, that never hurt anybody, right? It's natural to be envious. What caused Joseph's brothers to want to kill him and sell him as a slave? They were envious of the attention that dad gave to Joseph. Why did Saul go all postal on David? Because he was envious. People kept singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. He's like, no. Starts throwing spears and trying to kill, kill David out of envy. Envy causes us to do so many ugly things. Why did the religious leaders kill Jesus? They were envious. They, they were jealous. We don't want to serve out of the wrong motivation. God looks at the motivation of our hearts. That's what Matthew 5 is all about, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But Jesus says, don't be angry in your heart. If you've been angry in your heart, you've already committed murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. God's judging the motivation of the heart And Paul realizes that there were some who were responding to his difficulty out of envy. Note this, as your life gets put into the Vitamix, into the blender, you're going to find out who your friends are. Because some are going to rally around you and really love you and walk through it with you, but others are going to see it as an opportunity, maybe even to take advantage of you. So some were moved to envy and strife, and others were preaching out of goodwill. Verse 16, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. So they're out preaching Christ simply for the purpose of selfish ambition and to cause more pain for the Apostle Paul. They knew exactly where to stick the dagger in Paul's heart. Just as envy is dangerous, so is selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? It's the desire to serve, promote ourselves. So here we are doing the right thing. Outwardly, we're serving the Lord. But inwardly, we're wanting people to think how wonderful we are. Now turn with me one more place in Scripture. James 3, verses 13 through 18. James is further into the the New Testament. James 3, verse 13 through 18. This really jumped out to me this week on the danger of envy and selfish ambition. There's two kinds of wisdom in in James 3. Two sources of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's always an interesting question, isn't it? Who has wisdom and who is wise? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. What's highlighted there? Bitter envy and self-seeking, selfish ambition. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Wow, that's quite a statement, isn't it? How dangerous are envy and self-seeking? Well, where they exist, we're following wisdom from Satan, and it's going to result in confusion and every evil thing. Now, as we evaluate our lives, we go, is my life filled with confusion and every evil thing? It could mean that the motivation of my heart is envy and selfish ambition. But then this is contrasted that the wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that comes from heaven... But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, and good fruits. Without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we have to examine our own motivation. Is it envy and self-seeking? Verse 17, But the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So there were those that were preaching out of goodwill and love. We want to be in that category. We want to love God and love people out of a sincere heart. For God to to be glorified. In verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul could have gotten stuck in the pit of hurt these guys are hurting me. They're intentionally hurting me. He knew exactly what was taking place. But instead, he looks for what he can rejoice in, and that's the fact that Christ is being preached. They were doing the right thing. Even though they were doing it with the wrong motivation, Paul says Christ is being preached. The gospel is getting shared with people that have never heard the gospel before. So in that, I can rejoice. That takes great maturity, doesn't it? Just like him being in prison. He could get really bummed out that he's in prison. Or he could say, okay, it's given me an opportunity to share the gospel with a whole new group of people. All right, I'm in prison. This is how people are responding. Some people are going off with bitter envy and self-seeking. But they're preaching Christ. So I'm going to rejoice in the fact that Christ is being preached. So let's seek to find some application in these verses. Difficulty results in the furtherance of the gospel. As our lives are in the Vitamix in different season, God says, I'm going to mix things up. Trust, it's actually going to work out. It's actually going to work out. Okay, I want you to say that with me. It's actually going to work out. Your turn on that count of three. One, two, three. It's for the furtherance of the gospel. Isn't that cool? It's actually going to work out. And that's a step of faith, isn't it? That's a trust of faith sometimes. So we go, I don't know how this is going to work out. It doesn't feel like this is going to work out. But you wait, you watch, you'll see. God is going to use it for the furtherance of the gospel. Difficulty is in Christ. He's the one who's allowed the difficulty in my life. Embrace that. Don't run from that. All right, God, you're the one that's ultimately in control. You have allowed this. For my good, for the good of your kingdom, for your purposes that I don't fully understand, my chains, they're in Christ. Difficulty reveals the heart of others. Take inventory. You're going to see some love. You're going to see some goodwill. You're going to see some bitter envy, self-seeking. We want to examine our own hearts in that regard. And then this is the big idea of these six verses and Philippians chapter 1. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Paul is rejoicing in the gospel. Earlier on in chapter 1, he was identifying that his relationship with God is based on the gospel. He's secure in the gospel, and now he's saying, here I'm in difficulty, but I get to share the gospel. Here's how other people are responding, and they're hurting me, but they're sharing the gospel. And so I'm gonna rejoice in that, and he's connecting to the gospel. This is good news for us This morning, as a church, things do change in our lives. Life under the sun, this earthly life, is very uncertain. But you know what doesn't change is the gospel. So there's difficulty at work. Does that change the gospel? So there's difficulty at home. Does that change the gospel? There's difficulty in relationships. Does that change the gospel? I'm for sure for some with it being Mother's Day, it's a very difficult day. Maybe there's a broken relationship with mom, a broken relationship with kids. Maybe you've never been able to to have children. The gospel remains in your life. The gospel is certain in our life. This fortifies us. This brings us to the strong tower saying, okay, God, I don't know about this. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what the rest of life is going to be. But I know that you love me. I know that you died on the cross for me. You rose again. Psalm 16, the end of Psalm 16 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy. Think about that for just a moment. Your presence is the fullness of joy. The gospel, the promise of God's presence doesn't change in our lives. So for capacity of joy, there's lots of things that bring us joy in this life that come and go but Christ remains, and he is the greatest expression of joy. If you're longing to have joy today, it's found in Jesus. It's found in his presence. It's found in his promises, and we come to that place. We say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be in your presence, and I understand in your presence is the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. We hold on to them by faith that it will actually turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. That you're using difficulty as a strategic plan to allow your name to be proclaimed. We do thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control. That the difficulties and blessings in our lives flow through your hand. Jesus, we trust you. You died for us. We rest in hope. And Lord, as difficulty also reveals the hearts of others, help us not to get bitter or overly hurt, but to see the good, to see how Christ is being proclaimed in in the midst of that. We thank you the gospel doesn't change. We thank you that your presence doesn't change.